Hello and welcome to the Land and Climate Podcast. I'm Edward Robinson and today I'm speaking to Joelle Gerges, an award-winning climatologist and writer based at the Australian National University. Joelle was a lead author on the IPCC's Assessment Report 6 and hosts her own podcast, Fear and Wonder, over at The Conversation. Her latest book, Humanity's Moment, A Scientist's Case for Hope, is published by Island Press and came out just towards the end of last year. Sometimes when I tell people who know me very well that I wrote A Case for Hope and they say, you, you wrote A Case for Hope, I'm like, yep, because I found it. And, and it's a genuine sense of hope. It isn't this sort of Pollyanna-ish glib take on hope. It's a hard-won look at, at hope from someone who actually suffers from depression. You know, you've written a, a really candid book that, that takes in a huge amount of scientific detail. Coming down on the policy side, because we do you know, a lot of work with policymakers, or we try to explain science in the way that policymakers can grip onto. We're interested in the interaction between essentially modelling and policy and how they can sort of drive each other a bit. There's a bit of an alarming part of the early chapters, which is in AR6, but it's not officially in it, essentially, which is non-linearity is not really taken into account in the sort of models that are then going into that assessment report. The events that are unfolding are happening quicker even than the model suggests they should. Can you explain a bit about non-linearity and what's so worrying about that? If a system is linear, then the past is a pretty good guide to the future. But when a system is non-linear, it means that the next data point can actually veer off track. Imagine if you had to use a whole bunch of equations to describe the human body. So you had to come up with an equation for an arm, the brain, all that sort of stuff, and then try to get that all into one single complex system. As you might imagine, it's probably going to be a crude representation of reality. And the same thing goes for climate models. We do our best, but it's really difficult to also model things that we haven't been able to observe very easily in the climate system. So a really classic example would be, say, permafrost. So permafrost is frozen soil that's underneath the Earth's surface. And so it becomes difficult to be able to map and monitor that because it's also in remote parts of the world. It just poses a very difficult monitoring problem. And so if you can't have good observations of some of these really complex processes, then it's also very difficult to train those models to be able to reproduce the key features associated with some of the behaviours of these complex systems. That's also true of things like wildfire as well. It's just because the, conf- the, the climate system is really, really complex. And so that's not to say our models aren't useful. They are. But that's also the reason why in IPCC you can get a bit bombarded with a whole range of different scenarios because that's basically taking into account a whole range of different possibilities that we could experience ranging from very low emissions, intermediate emissions and high emission scenarios and kind of every gradation in between. We are talking about hundreds of models running um, thousands of different simulations and that provides us with I guess, these probabilistic assessments of future possibilities. That brings us back down to policy, right? Okay, so we know how the climate system works and we've done our best to try and represent those in climate models, but political and social systems are really, really difficult to model. So one of the big uncertainties is really understanding how human societies are going to adapt to climate change or not. And so As we know with the Paris Agreement, the collective target there is to try and reduce global emissions to 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels. So right now we're sitting at about 1.2 degrees of global warming, and you can already see the impacts that are playing out with that. Clearly, we're at this kind of crossroads 
where we understand enough about how the climate system operates and in terms of some of those basic relationships between, say, the burning of fossil fuels and the increase in surface temperatures, but also understanding that it's those human practices that we need to modify that will shift that expenditure of the carbon budget. So the carbon budget is basically how much more carbon we have left to burn to effectively try and achieve these um, Paris Agreement targets. So in a nutshell, I'm trying to say here that trying to model the climate system is really, really difficult. And so we try and take into account a whole range of different scenarios to account for uncertainties. But really, we're in a situation now where humanity has effectively become a geologic force. So the same as, you know, plate tectonics or gravity, we are a force of nature now. And so maybe in the past, people would find it hard to believe that we could exert such an enormous influence on the Earth system, but we really are at that moment now where the conditions that have sustained life and have been stable for at least 10,000 years are now starting to become unstable. Humanity as a life, as a sort of, yes, as a natural force now or a force on the world is, is interesting. And I, I think, you know, you put in quite a lot of evidence to back that up in, in terms of uh, even one of them that stuck out was only sort of 5% of, of animals, you know, alive today are truly wild. The rest of them are essentially domesticated or, or there for the purposes of humanity. Or That is quite an amazing figure. And to think that this is an instability in the way the world is, that is unprecedented in at least 10,000 years, right? potentially longer, it does bring home the degree to which in one or you know, not that many generations of industrialism, humanity has become huge impact on, on the way things are. Every single decision to exploit the natural world has culminated into this moment we find ourselves in now in 21st century sort of modern society. This is basically a cumulative problem. These historical emissions and also the destruction of ecosystems. So we often talk when we're talking about global emissions, as I'm sure many of your listeners are aware, about 70% of emissions come from the burning of fossil fuels and the remaining 30% is from the clearing of land and land use changes. And so there's an enormous job in terms of trying to repair ecosystems, protect them, but also turning the tap off the burning of the fossil fuels because we know that is the primary driver. But basically these conditions that have been stable and as a result of human alteration of these systems, we're now seeing the system starting to falter. Do we need more contemplation and understanding of the facts or do we need more quite noisy mobilisation and sort of shouting effectively and, and, and that sort of thing? Yeah, there's so much in that question. The first thing I wanted to just clarify is that the reason why I make that pretty lofty statement about feeling like I'm part of the last generation to really make a difference is because basically this coming decade we need to reduce emissions by 50% to be able to stabilise the Earth's climate within the Paris Agreement targets. But if you dig a little bit deeper into the report, you find that under all emission scenarios, we do actually breach the 1.5 degree target in the early 2030s. So it might mean that in some of the low emission scenarios that we see an overshoot, but then we come back down. But obviously, if you're an ecosystem like a coral reef system, you're going to be, in terms of bouncing back from that heat stress that it remains to be seen whether that's even possible on, on timescales that are sort of relevant to human societies. But the urgency, and that's why they call it the critical decade. So the 2020s, I believe, will look back at this moment and say, well, where were you? How did you show up in this moment? And so 
I think it takes all different types of people. I don't consider myself a naturally rebellious person at all. I mean, I'm a pretty conservative scientist. But when you realise that 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 very life force that basically allows life to thrive on, on the planet is at stake, you have to fight for it. I mean, for me, it became this unconscionable thing to think that I could just know what I know and step away from it and look away and somehow not share that information. So I guess it's fair to say that we all have different capacities to contribute. And I do think that while it is really important to reflect on things like our cultural values, so for instance, do we value the fact that we have thriving ecosystems and in a country like Australia, are we okay with the fact that the koala could become extinct on the East Coast by as early as 2050? And how do we feel about that as a community? So that's a deeply reflective process about our cultural values, right? That's actually not a scientific issue at all. That's just about what do we collectively value? But I guess what I'm challenging the reader to do in this book is to think about collectively, to really think about who you are as a global citizen and realising what you do wherever you find yourself on the planet really, really makes a difference in terms of what it is that you can do to be a force for change in the right direction. So it's about being on the right side of history. And if we have lots and lots of people doing that all over the world, then you end up with a critical mass that does create these social tipping points. And in the book, I talk about how you only really need about 25% of a population to shift a social norm. And so, for instance, if we're talking about the social norm of the burning of fossil fuels, if we decide as a society that the side effects of burning carbon are now cooking the planet effectively and, and causing the collapse of ecosystems, the displacement of tens of millions of people and so on. Are we all okay with that? Or can we actually remove the social license for that? So we, we can either provide or remove the social license for these things to occur. And with that comes a lot of power. So what I'm basically trying to say here is that we all yield political power in the way that we vote, the way that we consume. You can really put your own personal power behind those different decisions. Now, that might mean being able to reduce your own carbon footprint, which is still a really important thing to do because we absolutely do need to make those cuts everywhere that we can. But ultimately, it's the large-scale burning of fossil fuels that need to stop. And here in a country like Australia, now we have a progressive government, but we still have over 100 different fossil fuel projects on the table and really the battle continues basically all over the world right now. And this is the reason why collectively the Paris Agreement pledges are simply not enough. It really comes down to individuals in all different nations. The difficulty of climate change is that we all have to cooperate to really make this happen because we share an atmosphere, we share the global oceans, and and there's no way around this. My feeling is that We need everybody doing everything they can. And I do feel like also the sense of urgency varies from country to country. I was, I did a radio interview this morning and they were talking to me about climate anxiety. And I said, well, if you live in, say, Fiji, where at a high tide, you've got the waves lapping at your door, you're going to feel pretty concerned about climate change on a day-to-day basis. But if you're someone that's wealthy, you might live on a hilltop and you're in an industrialised country where you might be insulated, it might be a bit slower to sort of seep into your conscious awareness that the world is changing. But these days, you really don't have to look very far. When you look at your news feed, wherever you get your news, you'll see that the world is changing everywhere. And so I would say that that sense of urgency is still not quite there. I think Greta Thunberg encapsulates it really nicely when she says, we need to respond like our house is on fire, because it is. 
And I think it is lost on a lot of people. And I feel that it's um, one of these things that sometimes I wonder what is it going to take? Will it take, you know, uh, New York City being shrouded in, you know, wildfire smoke and people not being able to go outside? What will it be? And then the years pass and pass and pass. And I've got mentors who've been involved in the IPCC since its very first assessment report in 1990. And, you know, they're long suffering, but they still hold out hope. Basically, the science shows that once you start to stabilise emissions, temperature follows suit. So if we hold the levers to how much carbon we want to burn and how much of the land we want to restore, and also uh, coastal ecosystems as well, then it becomes a whole different prospect. That is really the challenge that faces us. And this is why I titled the book Humanity's Moment, because it is a profound moment where it's an invitation to reconnect with our shared sense of humanity and realising that can we just bear witness to the profound destruction that we are experiencing right now and be okay with that. So I would argue that a lot of us actually do care. A lot of us also feel really powerless. But what I do try and explain in the book as well, which I really enjoyed writing about and researching, was realising that all of human history is effectively this tug of war for social justice So whether it's like the civil rights movement in the US or the struggle for gender equality or Indigenous rights, all those different things, people end up saying enough is enough. Now, it's also important to say that it isn't always a done deal. We're still dealing with those entrenched issues, but we have progressed. And I guess the climate or sustainability crisis we find ourselves in is a similar thing where we really need to take a stand for what we believe in. And if it is that we want to protect our planet and have a habitable earth system that we can all flourish and that it is a safer place, a more equitable place. I think we have a real moment to also heal the deep wounds that are in our societies in terms of, you know, the dispossession of Indigenous people uh, and so on in terms of really taking this moment to realise that we actually have everything we need at our fingertips but it involves having an inclusive conversation and realising that we all have a, a role to play in this really profound moment. And I think when you think of it like that, then it, that really sort of electrifies the present moment where you really understand that what you do makes a difference more now than ever before. And the difference between the climate and the sustainability crisis and maybe some of those other social movements I, I talked about is just the scale. So obviously the scale of trying to stabilise the Earth's climate is enormous. But that's also why we need people to mobilise en masse. 18 months or so after the publication of your part of the assessment report, how optimistic are you? You know, we've had a global pandemic. Uh, we've now got a sort of semi-economic crisis some degree caused by that pandemic, which was an event from the natural world or natural disaster to some extent. How optimistic are you now, you know, as as we go into the really critical decades and we have a UN conference next coming up in a major fossil fuel centre of the world? Yeah, again, a really complex question there. But I guess one of the take-home messages from the IPCC report that sometimes gets lost is that how bad we let things get is still in our hands, okay? So, and the other little bit of good news there is that we actually have all the technology we need right now to halve global emissions by 2030. We don't need to wait for a silver bullet. We don't need to invent anything new. We could deploy that, say, tomorrow, and we could reduce emissions in terms of the low-hanging fruit that's there. So I'm talking about for 50% reduction, 
in global emissions by 2030, the IPCC says is achievable. So that brings us back down to the political will. If it's actually technically feasible, then there is obviously a disconnect happening in the policy realm. And then that brings us back down to what you were just discussing before about the role of culture. And I think it really comes down to, as I see it, culture is a way that we make sense of ourselves in the world in terms of it's a place of reflection and art is, has always been a way of understanding our past and the present moment and also making an emotional connection that bypasses, I guess, logic and reason and it's that visceral emotional response of really understanding something on a deeper level which isn't necessarily intellectual. And I think that's extremely important when we're talking about climate change because, to be honest, when we talk about things like, you know, renewable energy policy, that doesn't ignite the imagination or excite a lot of people, right, in many ways. But when you stop and you you think about, well, what can I do, say, as an artist or a musician or as a writer or as a poet to help shift someone's emotional world, to me that becomes a really exciting space because, you know, art and artists are, are really there to help provide a mirror back to society and say, well, are we okay? As I mentioned, are we okay with destabilising the Earth's climate? Are we okay with, say, the extinction of the koala or the decimation of the Great Barrier Reef or the loss of our wild places, but also the profound injustice that exists in terms of the climate impacts in much of the developed world? For me, it really is about rehumanising the conversation and making climate change, I guess, thinking about climate change as a cultural issue, not just as a scientific issue, because if we say collectively as a culture, we want to restore our custodianship in terms of thinking about ourselves as protectors of the earth system and restoring our relationship with each other. I think that is a, a profound thing. It's also a profound challenge. I'm not saying it's easy, but... I'm also saying that I guess I have an inherent belief in the altruism of people. I'm very acutely aware of the very dark side of humanity and so I don't come to this lightly. And that's why sometimes when I tell people who know me very well that I wrote A Case for Hope and they say, you, you wrote A Case for Hope, I'm like, yep, because I found it. And, and it's a genuine sense of hope. It isn't this sort of Pollyanna-ish glib take on hope. It's a hard one look at, at hope from someone who actually suffers from depression. So it's one of those things where, you know, sometimes the goodness of humanity is on full display. And, you know, we saw it during the COVID-19 pandemic where people were working around the clock to protect our communities. We see it when wildfires erupt and people go out there, they volunteer, they put themselves in harm way, harm's way. And also when I was working on the IPCC, just all the volunteers. We all volunteered our time. We got paid nothing to do this work for four years on top of our very full-time jobs. And we did it through a pandemic and we did it because we care so much about this. And so I guess when you surround yourself with that kind of information, it can shift your thinking about who you want to be and how you want to show up because there's always going to be those negative and dark forces. They exist. As we know, as we're seeing right now, you know, playing out in the warring nations of the world right now, it is always a struggle between people who are really wanting to protect the collective good versus the vested interests of a select few. And this is the story of humanity. So I guess it's one of those things where you can choose how you show up and I'd like to go down swinging and at least I can say I tried and I was on the right side of history. I did everything I could as a scientist, as a writer, as a human being, to convey everything I know 
in the hope that it lands and it reaches other people wherever they find themselves in the world and compels them to think really deeply about how profound this moment is and exactly what it is that they can contribute. So it doesn't have to be lofty. It doesn't have to be big. It can be big and small things. There'll be some people compelled to do really big things and other people that might not have the capacity. And it all comes out in the wash as far as I'm concerned. But what we all have, at least in democratic countries, is the capacity to vote. And if we continue to vote in governments that, for instance, don't have serious climate policy around restoring ecosystems and the burning of fossil fuels, then we need to make a lot of noise. So getting back to your earlier question, then we need to be noisy because so much is at stake. And once we un- once that genie is out of the bottle, it's really difficult to rein it back in. And that's what we're trying to say as a scientific community is we know that there are instabilities in the climate systems at those higher levels of global warming. So we want to avoid them like the plague, right? We want to keep away from those tipping point elements that see those cascades and we start to see these. Um, we already have irreversible elements of climate change. So even if we stopped emissions tomorrow, we're still going to have some level of warming play out. But how bad we let that get, so whether that's something that we can kind of mitigate and and then restore and come back down and restabilise the Earth's climate or if it becomes this mitigated mess, which is the sort of high emission scenarios you see in the IPCC reports, we want to avoid that at all costs. That's why we go to great lengths to actually show a whole range of different scenarios. So I'm ultimately a realistic optimist is how I like to put it. I'm very clear-eyed about the reality, but I also am fundamentally stubborn about the fact that there is goodness in humanity and that it will prevail. Well, that's all we've got time for this week. And thank you very much for listening. There's a host of other podcasts on our website, www.landclimate.org. Next week, we will be publishing a collection of articles, essays and opinion on the website on raw materials and the challenges for the net zero transition. And we'll be back in two weeks time with another podcast. Till then.